1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, back from the holidays. Uh, managed to get a few days away in the Dominican Republic, because apparently the last guy who booked in suddenly left in the middle of his holidays. I don't know what that was all about. Anyway, I'm back, and uh, straight back into the thick of it uh, today. We're looking at Austerity 2.0 this morning... Uh, Rishi Sunak and uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, were going through line by line what's in the spreadsheet, trying to find billions and billions of pounds, either through spending cuts or tax rises. So We've got to crunch the numbers and all of that. We've got a cracking lineup. You'll be able to hear from uh, Stephen Swinford, Pittsburgh of the Times, David Smith, uh, brilliant economics editor of the Sunday Times, a must read on a Sunday. Uh, plus, uh, Andrew Lansley, Health Secretary during the first round of austerity, Andy Burnham, uh, he was in the Treasury when the crash happened back in 2008. Uh, Gillian Pryor on public attitudes, and we're digging into the archives as well for a little bit of, uh, of George Osborne too. Uh, so all that is coming up in just a moment, and we've got the columnist panel uh, too. But loads of you, while I've been away, loads of you have been posting comments on the uh, on the doing reviews of the podcast, which is very good. It helps with the little um, with the old podcast charts. Uh, Russ says Matt surely brings insights to the events and issues around Westminster in an approachable way with the aid of informed guests from across the political spectrum. The weekly analysis of PMQs, question by question, is like a punch by punch post-match review of a boxing match. It's worth listening to the podcast for that alone. Thank you for that. And uh, Matt says, uh, loving the podcast. With so much going on, I have to say, I've been really enjoying the podcast and catching up with what's happening. Great topics and guests. I'm a convert lovely stuff I'll well, tell your friends uh, and if you're listening to this as you're listening to this while you listen to the episode go online and uh, go onto the, the app the po- Apple Podcast app and do us a review and give us some stars and that'll help on the mumbo J- jumbo charts basically so we can try and overtake uh, Jane Garvey and Free Glover because they're you know they're doing a bit too well at the moment uh, right that, uh, go and do that while you're listening to this uh, we'll kick off with The columnists, The colonists with Libby
2: Reitchie Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio.
1: Yes, this time of the morning I'll we wade through the news with Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And joining me in the studio, Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Have either of you seen uh, Swell of Arfman? Anyone even spotted her? <laughs> Anyone know where she is?
3: She's done a runner. We don't know where she is. Um uh... She's hiding in the. Ha- Nobody's seen her in the House of Commons.
1: No, uh, she's not
3: there to answer any questions. We
1: don't know whether or not she's going to a turn up in the House of Commons this week. She didn't last week. Um, it, how much trouble do you? Well, we'll sort of pick through the various bits in a moment, Rachel. But in sort of broad terms, how much trouble do you think she's in?
3: Well, she's been put into the cabinet for political reasons um but now the problem is really about her competence uh and the sort of uh she was there as the kind of token figurehead of the right wing uh she supported rishi sunak for the leadership at that very critical moment but the real issue now is that she's she's presiding over this kind of utterly shambolic immigration system so there's this problem at the manston detention center which is huge, uh, you know, diphtheria, huge overcrowding, but then also 4% of claims being processed of those coming in on the boats across the Channel. So there's a mixture of the sort of... Uh, the, the fact that she breached security, had to resign for that, then also compounded by this sort of uh, inability to get a grip on the situation now. I think it's... it's uh, Hard to see how she lasts in the, in the long term. But Rishi Sunak will be, you know, desperate to keep her because she's there only as a kind of political sop to the right.
1: Um, Libby, it struck me, because somebody sort of posited to me that when, when Soella was brought back by uh, Rishi Sunak, that it was the idea being that actually this, this migrant bomb is incredibly difficult to solve. The right always think they've got the solutions, uh, and so actually you put one of them in charge and if they end up having to admit they haven't got the solutions and that was one way of, of proving that they're being incredibly right wing and chartering flights to Rwanda doesn't actually work. I just don't think they necessarily thought it was all going to fall apart quite so quickly.
4: Believed that he was being as cunning as that. As, as <laughs> listeners to this programme know, I've been a sort of long time cheerleader for Rishi Sunak. I thought he was the best of a baddish bunch um, and I was sort of thinking when he became Prime Minister I thought oh when is the first time going to be when he disillusions me you know like the time that Blair disillusioned me very early on and shebang he did it almost immediately by bringing back Cruella and, and I was so depressed about this I think it's a disgrace Manston is a disgrace uh, any Home Secretary should be out there should be publicly should be talking about that should be talking about the security should be talking about what to do should be talking about the problem of the enormous Albanian influx and whether this could be treated separately, should be talking about possible future things like making the pull factor less extreme by having ID cards for work in this country. But she, instead of that, she's kind of hiding and, and you know, hoping that by keeping her head down and the only story about her in the papers being that she's been chucked out of the American bar for not renewing her uh, registration. Uh, it's so depressing.
1: And on the, um, uh, the, the the migrant issue particularly, Matt Dathan, our colleague, has just, uh, just tweeted, more migrants will be heading to Manston after 468 arrived in eight boats yesterday. That's oh. the latest from the Ministry of Defence. Uh, as Matt points out, there's an average of almost 60 per boat, which is twice the average of last year. So, the, so the, I suppose there's two things going on here, Rachel. The, the, the more people coming, just as the ability or the willingness to process them or house them has gone in the opposite direction.
3: Yeah. And you just have to think that the government has to increase the number of people who are dealing with these claims. So people are now having their claims taking over a year to be processed. And that then in itself is becoming a kind of pull factor because people are in the country already for over a year. Uh, They're they're housed, even if not in in a terrible condition sometimes. But that's becoming in itself a problem and a, a kind of draw. I think Libby's absolutely right as well. There needs to be more done to stop people wanting to come here. I went to the um, camps in Calais a couple of years ago and what really struck me was people... It wasn't that people wanted sort of benefits or free health care. What they wanted, they wanted to come and work. And Britain, unlike France, didn't have an ID card system that would... Um, make it harder for them to do that. So I think there are things that the government needs to do that aren't about sort of being mean and nasty on immigration. It's actually about making the system work properly. So you have to process the claims quickly and you have to make it, uh, you know, have a sort of proper system for working in this country with an ID card system.
1: One of the things that struck me about this debate, Libby, is it, it slightly gets characterised as people on the right like to talk as if every person in Manston is is uh, not a real asylum seeker and they're here, you know, uh, and they shouldn't be. As people on the left like to pretend that everyone in Manston is a, is a heart-rending tale of, uh, of um, you know, humanitarian crisis. And actually, the truth is, it's a mixture, isn't it? And it, oh, is what, we need to be able to deal need... with them both.
4: Well, this is, this is why we need a proper, fast, well-resourced filtering system. You know, like some of the displaced person um, camps in, in world, after World War II, you know, when Europe, you know, the Allies sort of got together and actually worked very hard to try and do this. There should be nurses, there should be interpreters, you know, there, there should be an enormous amount of help put in. But what you have with people like Suella Braverman and that business about dreaming of the flights to Rwanda as the greatest <laughs> present of all, is this notion that you can just sweep people away. And that's that, it just feeds into a, an extreme right stupidity, you know, which will get them and the asylum seekers and the fake asylum seekers, nobody anywhere at all. I mean, the fact that there's just been not enough effort on this is an absolute disgrace to what used to be the party people said, oh, well, at least they'll make the trains run on time. You know, they'll make things work. I think the Conservatives have just totally lost that over the last, uh, over 10 years. It's, yeah, Rachel? it's disastrous for them. Well, there are two
3: things that Rishi Sunak said on the steps of Number 10 when he, on his first day in as Prime Minister that he wanted to govern with comp- passion and competence and And integrity and integrity and when it comes to (laughs) immigration and Suella Braverman all of those three things he's failing on and I think Libby's absolutely right there's too much kind of political posturing when it comes to immigration policy actually if we just had a system that worked properly was efficient quickly dealt with claims um, it would be both more compassionate and also probably more efficient at um, deporting the
4: people who didn't have a legitimate claim.
1: Well, talking of uh, he said these
4: things, and then he then he appoints this muppet. You
1: know, <laughs> <laughs> well, muppet is probably quite a quite a, a reasonable. A um...
4: Nasty to the muppets.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Kermit's been on the phone. He's going <laughs> to uh, Let's move on. Actually, there's another thing that's in uh, Swell and uh, in injury to some extent. Um, what do we do about protesters? We've had some outside today. They've, they've sprayed our building orange. They've sprayed yeah. the home office orange. We had to orange.
3: come in through a side entrance
1: uh we are they stop, is it stop stop the oil
3: just stop oil, just stop
1: oil, yeah. um what do we do about protesters and and should we be uh dragging them off the road? if somebody was make, making this point earlier um uh there was a piece in the week one of the papers of the weekend, Jeremy Hunt had said that the amount that we're spending on energy uh and will be spending on energy is like funding a whole bit extra it's like funding a whole n h s so this is becoming a massive problem. I think somebody tweeted and said, well, you know, if only the people who pointed out we need to institute our homes better were listened to rather than being dragged off motorways." So I think it's possible to make that point. But what should we... Do? Meanwhile, on the climate change front, Richie Sunak is trying to make up his mind whether not to go to COP. Um, Libby, what should we... Do? should we be listening to people who spray our office orange...
4: No, no, because the point is we're all going to have to make sacrifices in the way that we live because of the climate crisis, which is real. But I don't think even 80% of the population at large really accept that. And if you make the image of climate care into disruption and stupid stunts and vainglorious, self-important stuff, which one police chief has said has already cost him 7,000 shifts you know, of police work, then people will not, people will become more hostile to the cause. It is completely, completely sort of destructive of their own cause and, you know, I, I I am the kind of person who could well could be found trying to drag people off the road if I was in a hurry with a child on the way to hospital in the car. But uh, that's not the answer either. Uh, it's it is just so so destructive. It is splitting the movement, which is one good thing. But still, there are the people who think they that you know throwing soup at paintings you know is the answer.
3: What's so interesting is, as as Libby says, some of the founders of Extinction Rebellion are against this kind of tactic. Yeah, yeah. So Rupert Reed, who was one of the kind of most um, high-profile voices on the climate change movement, he thinks disruption and this kind of really um hostile approach isn't is counterproductive. And I think that's right. You've got to win over the broad majority of public opinion. And you're not going to do that if you make it all about disruption and getting in the way and you know throwing soup at Invaluable paintings although i I I
1: can report i went to see it i went to see the sunflowers at the the weekend it's fine
3: okay (laughs) (laughs) but it's a bit like liz truss when she said you know i don't want to be popular i don't care the kind of millwall approach to politics nobody likes us we don't care that's never worked
1: worked very well for her
3: (laughs) (laughs) exactly you have to persuade people of your arguments which is why it matters that rishi sunak isn't going to COP27, actually, because you, you have to, as a leader, make the case that this is really important for all of us to yeah, take
1: yeah. seriously. I suppose that's the thing, because it, it sort of slightly reminded me of after the financial crash, when people started protesting outside some of the big banks in the city, So, was actually, you know, not condoning criminal damage, but at least the target was the, the people who people were angry at. Yeah. But what, what just making a slight wall of yourself, throwing soup at a painting, doesn't make people think, oh yes, I must go and lag my loft now.
3: No, or sort of gluing yourself to the motor. Yeah, factor. yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh, finally, then, uh, Libby, are you dressed? I can't see you, but are you dressed up for Halloween? <laughs>
4: Well, I look pretty horrific, but that's kind of normal. Um, I I hate Halloween. Normally, I I really, really try to stop myself from hating other people's pleasures. You know, it's something you have to learn in life is other people's pleasures, okay, if they enjoy it. But I loathe it. I mean, I don't mind the the very old traditional ones, one lit pumpkin in your house, you know, something to scare off the evil spirits who rage against holiness on the eve of All Saints Day. But I have this terrible American infirmity Flated thing, the trick or treat, and the children encouraged to dress as corpses, and stupid adults with pumpkins on their heads. You know, I'm really struggling not to be horrible in my <laughs> about other people's pleasures. I know you'll all be dressed up. I know you are I know Rachel Sitting is a warlock.
1: Yes, exactly. Rachel Sitting <laughs> here just <dressed> as a <laughs> goblin. She looks furious. <laughs>
3: No, I'm afraid I'm a Halloween Scrooge as well. So I have got a pumpkin sitting in my kitchen, but I haven't got round to carving it yet. And I, so just, I know I've got to, because otherwise you're saying to all the nice little children who are coming around for trick and treat, we're mean and nasty. So I will do it before this evening, and I have got some sweets oh, to give them. Turn the garden but, hose on them. <laughs> turn the hose <laughs> on you. But they're little children. The thing that I find <laughs> scary is when you get to sort of nine o'clock and it's the 17-year-olds asking for money and menacingly in those. <laughs> Horrible <laughs>
4: screen are you, are, you marks? Okay? Yes. are you okay with tiny children dressed as corpses? I think that's horrible.
3: Well, I don't like I'm it, gonna but say,
1: I'm going to say I quite like it. <laughs> I spent uh, a lot of time at the weekend carving the alphabet into a pumpkin for my daughter's obsessed with Stranger Things. I have no idea what the significance of the alphabet is, but I did it anyway.
3: I think it's a generational thing. Yeah, that maybe. when you're, um, cho- my children are teenagers now, when they're if children are
0: little, yeah, it's fun. It's but... fine,
1: yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm sure that people if, don't go and knock on Libby's door is basically the moral <laughs> of that story. But it might be all right. It's, we live on a, on a sort of main road, so we don't really get many trick-or-treaters. OK. So we just sit indoors and eat the sweets ourselves.
3: There's a code in our road. If you've got a pumpkin that's lit outside, they'll yeah. come and knock on your door. And if not, they won't. Stay
1: away. Mm. Wait, Sylvester and Libby Purvis there. Uh, both refusing to join in with the uh, the Halloween fun. Uh, right, up next, we'll take a look at Austerity
5: 2.0. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
1: You're listening to the Box Podcast. Now
2: it's time for this. The Big Thing. On Times Radio. Let's go round again. Yeah, let's
1: go round again. A Tory Prime Minister arriving in Downing Street, announcing the books are even worse than he thought, and embarking on a round of austerity. Well, we're about to go round that one again. On Friday morning, Rishi Sunak sat in the Cabinet Room with Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, with their teams going through line by line 104 proposals for saving money. Or raising tax so far only the nhs budget has been re- ring-fenced from austerity 2.0 but is it really necessary well today's planned emergency budget has now been postponed november the 17th as the hunt for 50 billion pounds continues yet the consequences of cuts made during that first round of austerity back in 2010 are still being felt across public services Just a few months ago, Jeremy Hunt, who was the health secretary during those austerity years, told me just how damaging that period was for the health service and social care.
2: We had a very, very painful period of austerity. I was part of the cabinet that that ushered that in. I I thought, and I think now actually it was the right thing to do to, to deal with the financial crisis and put the economy back on its feet, but that doesn't mean to say it wasn't very difficult for the NHS. I concluded pretty early on as Health Secretary that the NHS needed more money and that the 0.1% annual increase that we were getting uh, was not enough. But publicly I had to defend that settlement because we have collective responsibility. Privately I made the argument and first of all there was an £8 billion increase that uh, was to support Simon Stevens' five-year forward review and then there was a, a £20 billion increase. But even those increases, uh, that second increase ended up just about getting the NHS to its normal rate of increase. It wasn't generous by historic terms, but it was a big step forward from when I arrived. Where I failed was on social care, and there were cuts to the social care budget early on in that austerity period, and I think it was a silent killer, and I think it did have a really bad impact, and I still don't think we put that right. That was Jeremy Hunt speaking to me in the summer...
1: Uh, when he was just a backbencher, describing cuts to social care as a silent killer. Now he's in the Treasury, and he's got to repair the damage caused by the war in Ukraine, soaring inflation, and Liz Truss's mini-budget. Well, apparently Jeremy Hunt has been on the phone to past chancellors, including George Osborne, to ask for some advice. Well, reflecting on how the government acted in 2010, George Osborne told me it's best to move quickly. I think we
2: made essentially the right judgment call, which was the country was in a huge mess in 2010. The people who were going to be affected by that were the poorest. And that's what happens when you have a big financial crash. And countries which moved quickly to sort themselves out would be better off than countries that didn't. And we did. And We had more growth than anyone else and indeed the government I was part of helped create more jobs than any government in history. Now that's all, that's the record. Uh, You know, of course people are always going to complain that not enough money is spent on things but I think if we hadn't acted the country would be in a very worse situation than it is today and the people who would have suffered were the poorest.
1: That was George Osborne defending Austerity to me a few years ago. So what about Austerity 2.0? Stephen Swinford is the Times' political editor and joins me now. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Matt. How big is the hole that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are trying to fill? There's talk of £50 billion. Pounds. Is that the right sort of ballpark, Owen?
6: It sounds like it's the right sort of ballpark. They are aiming to, do, to, to fill more than the actual hole. So the actual hole is reported to be around £35 billion. They want some headroom on top of that. So they're going big and this they're actually meeting this morning Jeremy Hunt and the uh, the prime minister Rishi Sunak to discuss this going through it line by line so as we speak uh, Matt, they're probably meeting to look at and, and everyone that is looking at these forecasts is telling me it's really, really grim and there are no easy decisions. One thing it looks like they want to do is they want to fill the bulk of this with tax rises rather than spending cuts. So what they don't want to be doing is a full repeat of austerity. They want to, you know, as, as critics call it, balancing the books on the backs of the poor. They want to they, they want to they want to do it more from raising taxes. So we're going to be seeing a lot of that in the coming days.
1: Is there a little bit of uh, painting the worst possible pictures and it'll turn out to be not quite so bad? Call me cynical, Steve. But will it turn out, do you think, <laughs> that maybe it might not be 50 billion, that, that, that people tell you and I, oh, it's terrible, oh, it's grim, there were no easy decisions, and actually when we get there, it might not be quite so bad?
6: It might not be. But the the one problem they've got is they've got long term uncertainty with what's going to happen with energy because of the Russians, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So wholesale energy prices have improved. They have come down and that might start feeding through. But it just looks very, very uncertain going forward. And if you're the official forecaster looking at that, you wouldn't bet that it's going to be consistently better than it's been already. So the kind of things that they're talking about at the moment, a windfall tax, extending the existing windfall tax on energy companies, or going big on it, kind of extending it to electricity generators and others, could raise a lot of money. That looks quite likely to, uh, to, to be on the cards. And that's enormously popular, Matt. I mean, all the polling we've seen from YouGov and others suggests that most of the public would support higher taxes on the extraordinary profits that energy companies are seeing at the moment. So that feels like it's going to be coming. You could also see a freeze in income tax ban so that people could more people be dragged into the higher rates of tax. So there's lots of difficult things. But this week as well, we're also likely to see a letter go out to government departments from the Treasury saying that you need to look at cuts to your capital budgets, which is things like roads and rails and stuff like that. We reckon around 15 to 20 percent, some of them we asked to make um, as well as day to day spending, so it's, it, it, is, it is not easy Matt, at all, and yes, there's expectation management, but it is tough, there's tough decisions to be made
1: uh, Let's talk about benefits as well. There's been lots of to tu- and fro about the pension triple lock will pensions rise in line with inflation, and also benefits people you know people on uh, other types of uh, uh, of welfare. Uh, this is what the backbencher Michael Gove, told me earlier this month about the need to uprate benefits in line with inflation. Uh, I I would need a lot of persuading to move away from that, but I I wouldn't want to prejudge an argument that was put in front of me before the argument was made, because in crises, you sometimes have to do things and embrace policies that uh, uh, would, in other circumstances, be deeply unattractive. But my basic position, my starting position is, yes, Boris was right. Uh, that was Michael Gove at the backbench saying Boris Johnson was right to say the benefits should rise in line with inflation. Well, the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, on the BBC yesterday refused three times to say the same thing. What do we, we think is happening there, Steve?
6: I think it's still very difficult for them to do anything other than uprate benefits in line with inflation. So if they effectively try to cut benefits in real terms, that's going to be really difficult for people like Michael Gove. It's going to be really difficult for Mel Stride, the Work and Pension Secretary, who was, again, a a massive critic of Liz Truss's plans to cut benefits in real terms. So I, I think politically, It is is actually going to be very difficult for Rishi Sunak to do anything other than upgrade benefits in line with inflation. That doesn't mean it it won't happen, but it does mean it's much less likely because many of the people now sitting around that cabinet table, as you point out, just a a few weeks ago, were on the record criticising moves to cut benefits. Um, And for them to suddenly change their positions would be, we've seen a lot of U-turns, but (laughs) it does feel like Rishi Rishi Sunak keeps using this line, you know, I, I protect the most vulnerable. That's what I'm here to do. I look after the most vulnerable and that's what I've, I've proven with my record. Well, well, this would would be a key judgment of
1: that. And, and just, uh, you, you talk about U-turns, U-turns are uh, often forced, uh, sometimes by the markets, but more often by uh, Tory MPs. What is the mood amongst Conservative MPs uh, and their willingness to go along with some of these tough decisions? Because, of course, you're completely right. Some of the people around the Cabinet table, whether it's Michael Gove, Grant Shapps, these are the people who falsely trusted to some of those uh, U-turns on on 45p rate of tax and so on. Is there the, the the ability, the capacity on the back benches right now to cause trouble for Rishi Sunak? Or has he got a bit, a bit of political breathing space, do you think?
6: There, there, is, there is the ability both on the back benches and in the Covenant to cause mm.
1: trouble on that. And
6: it might not be the kind of explosive trouble we saw with Liz Truss, but there are a lot of voices there around that table that would be very opposed to another round of austerity like the George Osborne one that you were talking about earlier, Matt. And and they wouldn't be afraid, I don't think, of making those views public. So it feels at the moment, Matt. Everyone keeps saying that it's calmer. It's 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 you know more more. It's less frenetic than it was. Yeah, they're right. It it, it is calmer. But what is going on behind the scenes and what is coming is, is so monumental and so big and those difficult decisions. I do not think it will be very calm in Westminster for long.
1: Stephen Swinford, uh, political editor of the Times, joining us live uh, from Westminster. Thanks very much uh, for that. And as he says, uh, Jeremy Hunt and seen up meeting again today to go through. Spending cuts, tax rises, those difficult uh, decisions. But he'll need to convince uh, his cabinet colleagues of any plans to cut. All of whom will try to protect their own departmental budgets. Well, how does a prime minister make decisions on where to cut and who uh, can bear the brunt of it? Well, back in 2010, Andrew Lansley, now Lord Lansley, who was the health secretary in the coalition government, he also sat on the so-called Star Chamber, a small team, that met privately to debate departmental budgets. He told me how it works.
7: The essence of the Star Chamber philosophy is that while the Treasury negotiates its spending programmes with individual government departments, that actually the Treasury brings the non-departmental, senior non-departmental ministers together to give them additional political weight And so that they make judgments about what can be achieved by way of spending uh, reductions and what can't be achieved. I think at the moment, the Star Chamber is exactly what the Treasury requires, saying, well, what is politically acceptable and what isn't? The point is, I mean, we've been in a position where major fiscal decisions were not clearly subscribed to by the rest of the cabinet. And what the Star Chamber enables you to do is to get to the point where they really are agreed by the rest of the cabinet. What tends to happen in Star Chamber is that some people settle early and then they become part of the process of helping to decide what the most difficult, the, the end game decisions have to be.
1: You know, thought as difficult it is to debate budget with the colleagues from your own party, it'd be even harder when you're in a coalition. But Andrew Lansley said that wasn't necessarily the case.
7: The original Star Chamber in the Middle Ages was a uh, court and it does feel a bit like you're put up in front of a court. Now, in 2010, we didn't have a star chamber process because it was essentially the treasury, which of course was was originally David Laws on the Liberal Democrat side, then Danny Alexander. But George Osborne and Danny Alexander basically were able to run it off the back of the coalition program and the Quad. They have a separate thing called the Quad, which was about the uh, Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives working together. But of course, the political stability of the coalition was one of its most distinctive characteristics. It lasted five years, even though there were sometimes major disagreements on things like proportional representation and House of Lords reform and so on. But the coalition programme gave it a degree of political stability.
1: Uh, One of the big questions facing uh, the government now, of course, is where, if they are going to put up tax, where to to, uh, increase it. Earlier in the year, Rishi Sunak put up national insurance for the uh, national, the NHS uh, and social care levy. Uh, Liz Truss promised to uh, reverse that decision, which she did during her five weeks in Downing Street. Well, Andrew Lansley told me he thinks that the new Chancellor should now reverse the reverse to the national insurance rise.
7: Why did they feel it was essential to reverse the national insurance, the health and social care levy? They are going to have to spend that money. And difficult as it has been, and much as people didn't feel under financial pressure... That much, at least, had already been factored in. And one of the crucial things is to to start from where people are rather than, than go backwards and then start from a more disadvantageous position. The public accept that if they're going to increase health spending, National Insurance should take some of the heavy lifting on that.
1: Andrew Lansley, the former Health Secretary, talking about public opinion and what the public uh, will and will not accept. Well, Gillian Pryor, is from the National Social Attitude Survey. She explained to me how public opinion on austerity and inequality has changed over time.
8: We've been collecting information on attitudes towards government spending and taxation through our British Social Attitude Survey for close to 40 years. And in recent years, so at the moment, we've got around 52% actually saying that government should increase taxes and spend more on health, education and social benefits. And that's actually similar to the level we recorded pre-pandemic. So, We had about 53% in 2019. And so you might have expected, with the big increase in government spending over the pandemic, you know, following historical trends, you might have expected attitudes towards increased spending to actually go down in that period. But we haven't seen that picture. And what this really contrasts with is the picture since 2010 with austerity and so on and public spending cuts. In that time, we saw the percentage in favour of increasing government taxation and public spending going up from just 31% in 2010 in response to the previous high public spending era to um, a high of 60% in 2017 and still at 53% in 2019. So the previous pattern we have seen a very much public opinion reacting in the opposite way to the trends in public spending. We haven't seen that over the past few years and support for public spending, increased spending and taxation has remained at that sort of high, fairly high level. Uh,
1: and what about sort of attitudes towards other people? It, you know, I don't know whether you call it inequality or a sense of you know, collectivism or, or society or whatever it might be. The, the, mm. some, you know is it that when times are tight are people more selfish or have off the back of the pandemic and that sort of collective endeavor are people a bit more willing for sort of label well, i could i mean, i could pay a bit more tax because that would help other people
8: yeah well certainly and the last uh, most recent server we've seen um i think growing concern about inequality so for example um in our latest server we saw two-thirds of people agreeing that ordinary working people don't get their fair share of the nation's wealth and that's actually increased by 10 percentage points since 2019 so yeah kind of growing concern about inequality in society.
1: And clearly, uh, and I suppose it's difficult for you to capture this, but there's going to be uh, some tension coming down the track where there's a difference between trying to settle the markets who clearly want balanced books and lower spending and settling the politics where the politics want higher taxes and higher spending.
8: Yes, the signs are that the, the public remain relatively pro-welfare, pro-taxation, pro-spending, and we haven't seen a move away from that in our most recent survey.
1: That was Gillian Pryor, the Deputy Chief Executive at the National Centre for Social Research, talking us through public attitudes towards tax and spending. It's really interesting the way that's moved from, uh, what, just over a decade ago. So, how does Labour respond to the idea of austerity two point zero? Andy Burnham was the Chief Secretary of the Treasury at the start of the 2008 financial crisis. Back then, the Labour Party, under Gordon Brown, uh, I'll be honest, got itself into a bit of a muddle. They didn't even want to use the word cuts even though it recognised that spending would have to be controlled as part of balancing the books. It meant that the Tory party, under David Cameron and George Osborne, got out ahead of them, put themselves in a position to claim that Labour alone was responsible for the mess and they would do what was necessary to fix it. Randy Andy Burnham told me how he felt Labour's public messaging at the time let them down.
9: Yeah, it's interesting, Matt, to go back to that time because I think Labour won the policy battle, in my view, but lost the communications battle. So if I go back to my time as Chief Secretary, 2007 spending review, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling were really clear that we had to grow public spending beneath growth in the economy. Because they said, you know, we we were hitting the limits of what we'd done with investing in public services. And as Chief Secretary, I had a bit of a job on my hands, keeping the MPs on side because people were saying, well, why, why are we cutting back here? And why aren't we being so generous there? And so it was a sort of difficult spending review. Not long after it was completed, the ink was barely dry before some of the financial problems emerged. And then the Tories really capitalised on all of that and sort of tried to link it to spending decisions. But the truth of the matter is, if you go back to that 2000 spending review, Gordon and Alistair had kind of, I think, partly instinctively seen that public spending was going to need to be just under a bit more restraint than it had previously been. And, you know, the facts would bear that out. I just say though I just think they won the, the communications battle because at the time they were they were running an argument to say it was all Labour's domestic policy agenda that had led to this, and it simply wasn't true. It was an international crisis, and yet they managed somehow to make it sound as though it was all a, a crisis uh, that was created here.
1: That's Andy Burnham. Well, by the time austerity 1.0 is in full flow, the Conservatives basically found it really easy to tie Labour in knots over spending cuts and welfare restraint. But what would Andy Burnham's advice now be to the current Labour leadership and shadow Treasury team?
9: I would say to them, and I'm speaking as somebody who now is outside of the system, don't have regard for the, the optics and the traps. I think that's where politicians get themselves into to difficulties. Call it. From what you believe to be right or wrong, don't go with the traps. Go with what you feel is right or what you feel is wrong, because actually that's a stronger position to sort of camp out on. The Tory party is forever trying to play this game with the with the Labour party, and I think I, from where I stand, it's it's better to sort of not go there. You know, not 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 engage on those terms. Set your own terms. I just think sometimes, yeah, Westminster looks like it's having a sort of nuanced debate about something that, and people can't quite see you know, what's different and, you know, wh- why um, one side is right and the other's wrong. I think that that kind of approach to sort of Westminster politics, I think, often is the problem. I do think people are looking for quite kind of strong reassurance when it comes to a direction of travel. Now, personally, I think the Hun budget could get things as dramatically wrong as the Tang mini-budget. In that, obviously, the Kuateng mini-budget was throwing all that money at at, at the wealthiest. The the hunt budget, as far as I can make out, is saying that it's going to reassure the markets via public spending cuts. And I think that could be as disastrously wrong in a different way. You cannot start cutting essential services in these circumstances and not expect there to be serious risk uh, to people's uh, health and people's lives.
1: How's Andy Burnham, uh, the former Chief Secretary of the Treasury under Gordon Brown, uh, with some advice to today's Labour leadership. So how both Labour and the government approach their arguments may change depending on the latest forecast in the Bank of England uh, due this Thursday, including possibly a big rise in interest rates again. But is there some room for optimism? Let's try and end on a slightly more upbeat note. David Smith is economics editor of the Sunday Times and joins me now. Hi, David. Uh, you uh, you've, wrote uh, two pieces, two very good pieces of the Sunday Times yesterday uh, with, with sort of slight glimmers of hope that maybe things aren't as bad as they, they appear, possibly.
10: Yeah, I think the, um, you know, the two points I'd make, one is that uh, reflecting on what Andy Burnham was just saying, is that um, there is a danger that um, in his determination to uh, fix the public finances and fix them properly for good, uh Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt uh between them will overdo it you know that they uh, they don't you know you uh, as 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 Andy Burnham said lurching from one budget which was um tax cuts with no spending cuts to another one which is uh, tax increases and quite a lot of spending cuts so austerity 2.0 so so and I don't think I think there is a middle course to be uh to be uh, uh, steered on this one um, and the second point is that, you know, what we'll hear from the um, the Bank of England on, um, on Thursday is going to be conditioned on what the markets think interest rates will have to rise to, not necessarily what the Bank of England thinks. So uh, we had a speech um, a couple of weeks ago from Ben Broadbent, who was one of the deputy governors of the bank, essentially saying that um, don't believe the markets when they say that interest rates have to go up to 5% or so because... That would be really bad for the economic outlook So, uh, and too bad, if you like, for the economic outlook. So although there will be a big increase in interest rates on Thursday, the sense I think we'll also get from the bank is that they don't need to go up quite as much as the markets think. And that from now on, although there will be a big increase on Thursday, half or three quarters of a percentage point, the pace of increases should slow from now on and that the peak will be be lower than, than the financial markets are expecting.
1: And given, I mean, particularly what we saw—the the immediate uh, dramatic response in the markets to Liz Trust and Kwasi Kwarteng's plan—there's a lot of sort of sentiment and you know a human response to announcements that were made. Is there a risk of sort of talking ourselves into gloom and austerity? That if if everyone says, "Oh, we're heading for austerity two uh, they're saying there's a fifty billion pound hold that must be filled, and we've got to be running a uh, a surplus in the in the uh, medium uh, term. That actually, if they don't do that, then the markets sort of take flight all over again, and we end up in a sort of death spar?
10: I think there is a danger. Uh, the, uh, but I also think that um, the um, the new uh prime minister and his chancellor should take advantage of the kind of goodwill they've got in the markets. I think. I think in the end, markets, the financial markets, just didn't trust uh, uh quasi-quarantinealist trust to do the right thing under any circumstances. I think they implicitly trust Rishi Sunak from his period as, as Chancellor. They've come to trust Jeremy Hunt, even though he had no pre- previous experience as a Chancellor. And so I think the, you know, the ima- how much would um, trust and Khoa Teng have had to do to fix this credibility problem answer an enormous amount and probably w- we still wouldn't have fixed it. How much do um, uh, Sunak and Hunt need to do? A smaller amount, because they've already got, if you like, the markets on their side. And we've seen... Uh, as you will know, you know, sterling's recovered. Interest rates in the money markets and the in the in the government bond market have come down. There is a sense that mortgage rates won't go up quite as much as they were. So I think they don't have to they don't have to wear the hair shirt so spectacularly as as say David Cameron and George Osborne did in 2010 to reassure the markets this time. As long as people think that the economy and the public finances are in reasonably safe hands, I think they can get away without. Inflicting too much pain on
1: all of us. David Smith, really good to speak to you. David Smith is the economics editor of the Sunday Times. And I, I recommend looking up both of David's pieces from yesterday because uh, he really was sort of walks you through all of the issues uh, that might be coming down their track with Austerity 2.0. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?